You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Hello, Wade Zaglis here, the Education Editor for Campus Review. Amid a precarious world where old jobs are disappearing and new ones are emerging, the idea of lifelong learning has morphed into something more of a must rather than an intellectual hobby or pursuit. But how will lifelong learning advantage Australians and which industries will benefit from it most? To discuss these issues and other topical points, I'm talking to Australian and New Zealand Regional Director of D2L, Tony Maguire. Tony, welcome. We're often told lifelong learning has always been good. Why do you think it'll be even more important in the future? Well, great to be with you and uh, spend some time with you and your listeners. Your preface there was really, really impactful, I think. The way in which we think about lifelong learning makes us consider the changes in a whole variety of industries, the way in which the nature of work has changed. And I think by actually articulating lifelong learning as a developing and morphing thing, if you like, we need to think about it and address it in specific ways. So the impact of lifelong learning, I believe, is probably threefold. First of all, lifelong learning speaks to the way in which we recognise the changing nature of work, mm-hmm. particularly for young Australians who are going to be inheriting uh, the economy that we leave behind. For them, it will be a different world. The gig economy, the casualisation of the labour force and the changes in the fabric of the economic mix across regions and across industries is going to be important. The second thing we need to think about is a way in which we consider the normal sorts of scaffolds that we've seen for education for the last you know, two, three hundred years. We think about primary, secondary, school edu- education, that pathway then typically when I was growing up into vocational, get a trade, those vocational and uh, trade-based uh, uh, employment opportunities uh, for, again, for my generation, being first to university was something which, which was quite novel. I went into primary school teaching. So that ability to go to university or go to further education in a more formal way. Uh, and then after that, the way in which we would then move into potentially professional associations. All of those traditional kinds of pathways are now morphing, realigning, and quite often, especially in the case of associations, redesigning their value proposition to to different, if you like, um, customers, consumers, students, call them what you like. That approach to education is changing rapidly. The providers are changing rapidly. And I guess the third thing then is when we look at that premise up front around the changing nature of work, then secondly, the changing nature of education, we have to have a way in which we can reflect on learning that happens across that that lifelong journey in a way which allows learners to show the value of what they've learned, mirror that to employers, and essentially be able to find reward for the work that they've done, whether that's through on-the-job training, their experience, formal qualifications, micro-credentials, and bubble that up in a way where they can show that value, show that learning to employers. Employers can recognise it 
and that can then be built into the employment structure that those employees and employers enter into. So I, I guess a lot of that's been covered in my next question, but you may want to add more. What are the advantages of lifelong learning to, to Australians in particular and to the economy and so on? I think the ability to look at lifelong learning longitudinally gives us a chance to consider the way in which employment opportunities are changing. We, we recognise that machine learning, back to, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, robotics, all of these sorts of emerging technologies are having a profound impact on traditional lines of employment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of research that's been uh, put out there. Uh, I go back to quite often when I'm speaking with uh, with, with government and leaders around the country. I talk about the work that the Foundation for Young Australians is doing. Well, they've looked at a whole variety of research uh, that's going to really provide quite a, uh, a treasure trove of information for employers um, and for government if it's, uh, if it's uh, effectively leveraged. And that talks about the way in which jobs are changing, the expectations of employees is changing. Many Australians, young Australians aren't looking for full-time employment. They're looking for work-life balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also understand that um, the skills that are learned in one job are transferable to you know, 13 others. But we also know, based on this research, that an employee, uh, sorry, we also know, based on that research, that a young Australian coming into a job now will probably go through five or six different career changes through 17 different employers. Mm-hmm. The difference here is there's no perfect job going forward. It's a cluster of jobs that you will move into that provide you with that portability of skills. So I think that's the first thing. We can think about the way in which we look at long-term employment, the changes, and the way in which things like knowledge-based learners can more effectively navigate through different clusters, through different roles, and more effectively find long-term employment in places where they have a passion or they have a skill yeah, set. That definitely reflects my experience, and and it usually mm. um, roles that are you know not um, entirely different. Maybe just you know a, a little shift here and there. It, we talked a little bit about how how these uh, how traditional you know courses uh, you know you know your cert threes your your uh, cert fours your your degrees um, uh, you know have been the traditional way of upskilling. But how do you think citizens will be pursuing lifelong learning in the future? Um, so what I'm talking about here is uh, do you think that there is going to be a huge rise in these micro-credentialed courses? Do you think or do you think traditional degrees are still going to be popular? And which industries do you think these kinds of micro-credential courses will most appeal to? I was speaking with a, a colleague um, who's the, um, the MD of a local company called Edelec, they work in the credentialing space. It's their job to keep an eye, I guess, on global trends. And we were chatting earlier around just that question around 
the expansion of micro-credentials. Just how big a thing is it? You've got global powerhouses like Arizona State University releasing digital wallets and portfolios. Basically, this is an opportunity to brand, to benchmark, and to, in a sense, provide an informal warrant on the quality of micro-credentials. So I guess, firstly, I see micro-credentialing as something which is very much on the rise. It will become much more mainstream in terms of the way in which we think about and recognise the skills that have been uh, developed within our our employees or within our students. Um, I think it's, I think the missing piece is we don't have a clear scaffold yet as to how we can take those micro-credentials and link them back in the workplace or in, in into more formal education spaces in a way that we can attribute the value of the learning against more traditional like degrees national, accreditation. Like the national recognised. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly. the main concern yeah. I'm hearing is that it, it, yeah. it's not, um, it doesn't uh, fit into the, the Australian qualifications framework yet. It's not yeah. nationally recognised. I mean, this m- must be an issue for these kinds of courses moving forward. Queensland Chase having a fair crack at this, Wade. Their approach is to look at that research that I spoke about with Foundation for Young Australians are actually partnering with the foundation and they're building a set of micro-credentials based around future skill clusters that they're seeing from their market research and they're loosely aligning those to the uh, Australian standards. Still work to be done in this case. The Queensland TAFE, I think, based on my conversations with other state-based TAFE organisations, is really taking the lead on this and they're seen as someone to pay attention to locally uh, in the development of those micro-credentials into a meaningful way of, I guess, building a framework. Mm. Yeah, you've got to have that value. Now, Tony, mm. you've had that uh, quite a bit of experience, I believe, with Deakin and Victoria University um, co-developing developing block models of learning. Um, can you explain block models of learning and whether you think they will be in vogue soon or you know a thing of the future yeah the block model essentially was something that vu victoria university decided to move to they were having significant struggles with first year students they needed to provide a way to better support them to have better insight into what was happening with with those learners through those early uh, phases of their of their undergrad degree what they found was the traditional approach, three starts per year, maybe, semester one, semester two, maybe a third term, was really difficult for those students. There were lots of competing pressures on them and the complexity of a standard undergraduate program was really challenging. What VU did was they changed the model to a series of blocks. So eight to 10 blocks per year. Each block is one subject. So instead of having to to confront a large timetable of multiple uh, subjects, students now could focus on just the one subject. They would do that for four weeks. In that four weeks, they would do the intensive work, the volume of learning that was required for that student. uh, Sorry. They would complete the volume of learning required for that subject. They would do the formative, summative assessment, 
all the assessment tasks, assignments and so forth. The flip side of that was the university then would turn around the assessment of that subject in two weeks. Oh, sorry, let me restart, wait. That's okay. The flip side of that is the university would have to turn around those results and authorise the learning and the assessment in two days. So there were clear benefits for the student. Mm -hmm. There were pressures on the university in terms of work processes. But at the core of all of this was a focus on better outcomes for students. I can tell you the three things that occurred for the university over that uh, period of time. First of all, they found in the early periods of COVID, there was no discernible impact across the various cohorts who were engaged in the block model. In fact, for some of the higher achieving cohorts, they actually did better. Secondly, the way in which the block model was architected by VU meant that when the regulatory body, TEXA, looked at the program of work the students were engaged in, the robustness of the assessment, they actually got a tick from, from TEXA. That was a huge win because it proved the value of the block model from a regulatory perspective, the robustness, the uh, effectiveness of the assessment, all the data points that were required were clearly in place. The third thing it meant was that irrelevant of the mode, whether it was on campus, face-to-face, -face, through to online or remote, the learning program was the same. So the students went through less change. I think there's three real benefits. There was a, an additional benefit that I heard from uh, one of the academic leadership there. And they said that the other value for them was they were now able to move away from three starts or two starts per year into a rolling enrollment model. Mm. Now that much more closely aligned with the work habits and the work-life pressures on students. Students could pick up a subject as and when they needed to, as opposed to, I have to start in February, March, I have to start in June, July. So there was a lot of flexibility provided to learners. So their, their enrollments actually went up. Yeah, and I just think it's such a clever idea in that, you know, mm. a lot of people just like to focus on the one thing and, and uh, not have their attention spread too thinly across too many subjects, especially if they want to um, do really well. So it, it, it's, a, it's, a novel, um, it's a novel way of learning and it will be interesting to see how it um, eventuates in the future. Yeah, um, I agree. Finally, Tony, there is a lot of discussion right now about whether some universities should be teaching-only institutions, given that we know the rankings are heavily skewed by research impact, not so much student um, you know, evaluations or you know, the, the effectiveness of the teaching. What are your thoughts on that and do you think it could lead to better experiences for everyone, staff and students? The concept of teaching only universities or teaching focused universities is not that newer a thought, I guess. What it says to me is that there are a couple of things we need to deconstruct in a sense. And you've called out 
a very big elephant in the room, Wade, you talked about that link between research and university ranking. So that's something that we do need to think about. How does research impact on reputation, standing, funding? These are important questions. But we also have to think about the flip side of this. How do we improve teaching within universities? So University of Australia is very clear that the quality teaching awards are going ahead this year. And I think it's important that we recognize teaching at that strategic level and the importance of good, good teaching and learning. But I think there's been a longer term conversation bubbling around in the background. And you hear terms like you know, bundled learning services or bundled teaching services or bundled education services for universities. At some point, universities thought about the cost of assessment, they thought about the cost of tuition, and they knew that this was a major cost center for them. So we, talk, we thought about ways in which we could casualize the tutorial and academic workforce. We needed to bring flexibility and the, and the options of bundling services or providing services to students in different ways. I think teaching only universities is a kind of extension of that really. We have universities such as Torrens that are fully online. They have quite modest research aspirations at this point, mm -hmm. but they are nonetheless strong online players in certain spaces. I think the concept of a teaching university has a lot of merit, particularly when we're thinking about the way in which regional universities have to focus on specific bands of research, but do play very strongly to the teaching and upskilling of local regional communities. So I think we need to be able to, I guess, First, deconstruct that, that notion of universities in, in some way, and then reconstruct it in a more, I guess we then need to reconstruct it in a way which is better aligned to the changing needs of communities, mm -hmm. particularly as we go through those changes in the workforce we spoke, spoke about up front. If the research base isn't there, how do we still provide the skills at a tertiary level to those communities, a teaching cohort? within a university makes a lot of sense. I think the last point to be considered there is, as we look at the changes to international versus domestic student mixes in universities, we have to be more cognizant of the rise of domestic populations in those university mixes, the decrease of international, and what is in the best national interest in terms of skills, building knowledge economies in regions or specific research hubs within various areas. If yeah. we actually think about that, and then from that decision, think about teaching and research universities, we'll have a better understanding of the way in which we can go forward successfully. Tony McGuire from D2L, thank you so much for a really interesting conversation today. Wade, it's always a pleasure. Look forward to chatting again.